Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic show for you today. <laughs> Brianna, what is going on? Well, we have economist Richard Wolf here to discuss the housing crisis and what's really at the root of it. Also, our Rising panel will discuss the debates states are having over gender-affirming care for young people. But first, Ron DeSantis is suing the FDA over what he alleges to be delayed approval from the agency for Florida's Canadian prescription drug importation program. Let's watch. After 630 days, you know, we still sit here waiting uh, for an answer. And so it's our view that we've waited long enough. Uh, and so today we're taking action. Uh, the state of Florida has now filed a lawsuit against the FDA. Uh, they have unlawfully withheld and unreasonably delayed approval of Florida's program. And we think this violates federal law. So we're... So we're asking a federal judge to order the FDA to put an end to that delay and to approve Florida's program. Uh, included in the lawsuit are claims under the Federal Freedom of Information Act. In early July, ACA filed a FOIA request seeking records from the FDA to increase transparency on their approval process. Under the act, the FDA had 30 working days to respond to our request. And I don't think you'll be too surprised. We still have not received a response to our, our request. So the clock's been ticking. Uh, we have a right to know what the FDA has been doing the last two years uh, to ensure uh, that they are, are they putting politics over patients? Are they putting the interest of big pharma over the interest of average Floridians um, and taxpayers? And that's what we need uh, to find out. The original request for approval was sent by DeSantis back in November of 2020. What do you make of this, Robbie? Yeah, this is a great idea. Yes, yeah, so they approved this plan a long time ago. And Biden is uh, apparently on board with doing exactly this, using imports to, um, to, to lower drug prices. So it's just like an obviously good thing that should be done. And what is getting in, a, in the way? The FDA, because they're slow moving. It's not even necessarily that they're against this or have any problem with this. They're just a slow moving bureaucracy that takes too long on everything. And this is why we don't have good health care. This is why everything's too expensive. Not the whole reason, but it's part of the reason. Things take too long to get improved. There's too much red tape. There's too many hurdles put up by bureaucracies that just well, are the enemies Robbie, of progress, It's Brianna. interesting that you say that because Ron DeSantis is actually pointing to another cause. I don't dispute that the FDA has been slow moving. We talked about this in the context of the a whistleblower who warned the FDA about problems at the Abbott baby food manufacturing plant and the FDA still didn't act for some time and not fast enough to prevent um, two infants from, from dying after that crisis. But the reality here is that John, uh, Ron DeSantis is pointing to the idea that it could be pharmaceutical lobbying that is causing them to drop drag their feet here because obviously local pharmaceutical industries sure, they don't want competition to yeah to absolutely lose profit so whatever the bad, case bad. whatever the case i think ultimately we're in a good place where we have people across the political spectrum arguing mm -hmm. for americans to get access to lower cost drugs i don't see a problem right. i the farm i'm not on the pharmaceutical companies they should have to compete with every other pharmaceutical provider on earth and there should be less gatekeeping the fda should stop you know preventing uh, competitors because competition does if, if you actually have comp if you have actual competition instead of structured competition mm. or large companies lobbying the government to prevent real competition you do bring down prices you mm. tend to bring down prices mm. so it's uh it's it's very 
very interesting. And, and I, I said I, I support the at the federal level the you know the plan to give the government more power to negotiate prices with um, uh, with with pharmaceuticals right. having to do with Medicare. I, that seems like a no-brainer to me. I don't even know why that's coded as like a far-left policy or something. It's, Agreed. It's, it's actually very similar to um, uh, to what I said about what to, what will happen with tuition prices if we go, keep moving toward the income-based uh, repayment model that I, I talked about. If you just if if you if the government's going to help people um, afford this a service, no matter what the price of it is, the provider of the service will just raise the price at, like forever, astronomically. They'll yep. face no downward pressure. So it's remarkably, like the government is, go, if they're going to do this, they have to do something to do this, or else the, or else the, the incentives will just be so broken. Yeah, strong, strong populist point for Ron DeSantis here. Yeah. Well, Florida's Surgeon General echoed DeSantis and acknowledged that high prices Americans pay in comparison to other countries. Leaders in the federal government right now, the FDA, the Biden administration, have prioritized the interests of pharma. And be very clear, their interest is to keep their profits high. And they do that best by making Americans pay more for drugs than anyone else in the country, anyone else in the world. One reason for the discrepancy in cost between the U.S. and Canada is how we regulate, or rather how the lack of regulation over big pharma, while in Canada, Canada does have more federal regulations that put caps on certain uh, prescriptions. Here in the U.S., we allow the prices to be determined uh, through Medicare, even though U.S. law prohibits Medicare from negotiating the price directly with manufacturers. Now, like we said, that's something um, that is going to be changed, I think, because of the, in, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Americans still pay about 55% more for prescriptions than other first world countries. Let's take a look at this chart. You can see here some drug prices in the U.S. compared to Canada. For autoimmune diseases, you could save a whopping 88% in Canada. Asthma patients could save 72% if they had the Canadian option. Diabetes patients could save 74% for their prescriptions. And EpiPen, while still nearly $300, uh, Americans pay over $600. And this chart shows that year-over-year year analysis found the U.S. increasing top-selling prescriptions by an average of $165 from uh, 2020 to 2021. Comparatively, Canadian drug prices have dropped by $1 in the same period. Yeah, this is unconscionable. And, <laughs> and we talk about this, we have become so inured to this that I think people forget the orders of magnitude more that we pay in the richest country in the history of the world where so much of this innovation and manufacture of these drugs even happens and other people because we don't allow our government to negotiate the way the markets work for everybody else for it's these the drugs. the collusion prices. between the big pharmaceutical companies that don't want competition and want to keep their prices high. Yes. And they, and they have cozy relationships with Congress people yes. that, that will not that will not support reforms, and then they have this slow-moving bureaucracy that they also have cozy relationships with that is, is, looks unfriendly toward um, upstart or rival or true competition from foreign competitors or other. Yes, and I'll be talking about this in my radar uh, as well a little bit, but it's worth remembering that Big Pharma uh, is still, this is from Open Secrets, a recent article. Big Pharma is still largest lobbying spender as Biden signs crackdown executive order. House seeks to pass bill lowering drug prices. They are lobbying their pants off, spending more than every other industry to make sure that policies like this don't go into effect. So whether or not, you know, Biden is uniquely susceptible to them is kind of beyond the issue. He's not this uniquely is, This is not a political he, we, we issue. Answer, there's no way he's but, uniquely susceptible Right, but many, yeah. many people on the left were pointing this out, uh, you know, during the primary race, right. how important it is to have elected leaders who forego 
big money lob lobbying dollars like this. Biden happened to be the largest recipient of a lot of these dollars in the context of the Democratic primary. And so these kind of things deserve scrutiny. Uh, Biden took more billionaire dollars than anybody else in the race. And these things have trickle down effects. And this is happening. This is not a partisan issue. But money in politics is a core foundational reason why common sense bipartisan policies like this go unpassed and unenacted in the United States of America in alleged democracy. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I, I was doing more, because you brought it up on the show, I, I was hoping we could maybe have a, a debate or bring some experts on to discuss it, uh, the insulin right. issue, because that one's so expensive. I was looking at it, and well, there's a lot of ways in which the FDA, for again, because they get you know, indirectly, the government is lobbied by uh, pharmaceutical companies to keep it the way it is. But the intellectual property uh, protection is is extreme, it's, far, it's, too, it's, far it's too extreme. extreme. Correct. And the FDA has made it prohibitively uh, uh, expensive, or not has, has made it so prohibitive to develop generics that yes. the so the, the only companies that could do it because the intellectual property protections don't do it because there wouldn't be enough profit because the FDA makes it too difficult. Yeah, the, and and all, yeah. all those things are bad. <laughs> the point of intellectual property protections is to, create, so is to create enough profit for yeah. people to inspire innovation. It is not intended right. to create the billionaires and the billionaire, billion dollar industry that exists, which has only become more profitable in the context of this pandemic and the economic downturn that the rest of the country has been suffering with, and which has prevented millions of Americans from accessing their life-sustaining and life-saving healthcare. So, you know, this is, this, is, this is a good move. I love to see people across the aisle both fighting hard, trying to outmatch each other for how hard they're gonna fight for the American people. This is a good moment. Yeah. Philosophically, it's not even the same. Intellectual property is not. It's not actual property. There's a, there's a principled libertarian argument for why the whole concept doesn't make any sense. All right. That's, but, that's a um, whole other panel, Robbie. All right. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, and I'm looking forward to your radar, Brianna. Stay tuned. All right, Brianna, what's on your radar today? Well, Ravi, Democrats are bribing voters. Democracy is imperiled. At least that's the messaging coming from establishment figures following Biden's student debt cancellation announcement. Former Rising co-host Buck Sexton described the $10,000 of relief for students too poor to pay for college as a taxpayer-funded bribe perhaps forgetting that student debtors are taxpayers too. Mitt Romney tweeted that it was sad to see what's being done to bribe the voters. And as, as I discussed in yesterday's radar, Texas Senator Ted Cruz warned that bong-smoking baristas might actually vote now that the government had, well, improved their lives. For shame. But with all of this talk of bribery, there's shockingly little discussion about the biggest bribe ever in American history, which happened just last week. Yes, just last week, The Lever broke a story about the largest known donation to a political advocacy group in American history, $1.6 billion worth of bribe. Who was it from? Who was it going to? And what did it purchase? Is the billionaire donor likely to demand something that's in your interest as an average working American? Or should you be concerned? Let's get into it. The donor is Barry Seed, a 90-year-old manufacturing magnate who made his fortune as CEO of a Chicago company now known as Trip Light. Seed donated 100% of the shares of Trip Light before the company was bought by an Irish conglomerate for $1.65 billion, according to reporting by the New York Times. And true to type, the billionaire transaction was structured in a way that 
completely avoided any and all tax liability. Now, before we get into the who, where, what, when, and why, let's put the size of that donation into context. $1.6 billion is more than the total $1.5 billion spent in 2020, an election year, by 15 of the most politically active, democratically aligned nonprofit organizations. The top 15 Republican-aligned groups spent only $900 million during that same period. But Democrat or Republican, that's a lot of money coming from one source. It's a lot of money behind just one man's agenda. Democrat or conservative, everyone who is or has been concerned about the influence of dark money in politics should pay attention. As the Founding Fathers warned, big moneyed interests have the power to radically undermine democracy. Already a 2014 Princeton study has shown that America isn't even a democracy, but a plutocracy. Researchers found that economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy, while average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. In other words, public preference has zero effect on the legislative agenda. Wealthy elites move policy, not voters. Specifically, the Princeton researchers found that, quote, when a majority of citizens disagrees with economic elites and or with organized interests, they generally lose. Moreover, because of the strong status quo bias built into the U.S. political system, even when fairly large majorities of Americans favor policy change, they generally do not get it. They conclude, we believe that if policymaking is dominated by powerful business organizations and a small number of affluent Americans, then America's claims to being a democratic society are seriously threatened. With all the crowing Democrats are doing right now about the need to save our democracy, addressing the corrupting influence of money in politics is suspiciously, suspiciously absent from the agenda. It wasn't always that way, though. Back in 2008, both Barack Obama and John McCain distinguished themselves in their respective party primaries by advocating strongly for campaign finance reform. But while John McCain opted for public campaign financing, Barack Obama reneged. As a McCain spokeswoman put it at the time, the true test of a candidate for president is whether he will stand on principle and keep his word to the American people. Barack Obama has failed in that test today, and the reversal of his promise to participate in the public finance system undermines his call for a new type of politics. I've got to say, no lies detected. Campaign finance reform became an issue in the 2020 primary race, during which Bernie Sanders embraced, uh, embarrassed rather, the large Democratic primary field by out-fundraising the lot of them, despite being the only candidate not to take corporate billionaire donations. It became an issue again at the end of the primary season when Senator Elizabeth Warren abandoned her no-corruption messaging and accepted $9 million from a super PAC just before Super Tuesday. That infusion allowed her to stay in the race despite losing the confidence of small-dollar donors, winning zero primaries, and coming in third in her home state of Massachusetts. She was later required to report the source of her multimillion-dollar gift, a single California billionaire, Californian billionaire. To many progressives, this one billionaire donation undemocratically undermined the last remaining shot at a progressive populist in the White House, damning Bernie's campaign and sparking other media, a whole other media cycle about the insidious influence of big money super PACs. While campaign finance reform has largely faded to the background of public discourse in the COVID era, Biden did try to pass some campaign finance legislation at the start of his presidency in the form of H.R. 1. 
However, the legislation could not get the 60 votes necessary to pass the Senate. There was a 50-50 partisan split with no Republicans supporting the reforms. Now, H.R. 1 would require super PACs and dark money groups to disclose their donors publicly. Remember, this is one of the biggest problems with super PACs. They make it hard to trace influence and make influence peddling harder to call out. The other issue is that super PACs allow individuals to get around the donation maximums that are intended to keep a few rich elites from having an undue influence on our political sphere. Now, H.R. 1 didn't do much to solve that second problem, which is perhaps the most important one. And here's the issue. Neither Republicans nor Democrats have demonstrated a real interest in getting money out of politics. And it's easy to see why when you look back to the Obama example or the Warren example. Why turn off the spigot when billionaire elites are all too willing to bail you out? This should be a huge political issue with bipartisan support. And kudos again to John McCain for trying. But today, today, where are the Republicans in all of this? Why is so much energy directed at calling out various corporations for having quote-unquote woke politics when the issue should be of corporate interest and influence, period, regardless of whether a given company cynically funds a Pride Day parade? After all, many of these so-called woke corporations have historically given to Democrats and Republicans in approximately equal measure. DeSantis targeted PayPal, for example, as woke, but the PayPal PAC spent considerably more in the 2018 midterms on Republicans than Democrats, and it spent slightly more on Republicans during the 2016 general election season. The pendulum swung only slightly in favor of Democrats in 2020. As with most issues in politics, it's more top-down than left-right. It's a big club, and no, you are not in it. So. With that background, let's get back to the breaking news, the largest political donation in American history. The donation went to a political group controlled by Leonard Leo, the architect of the conservative Supreme Court supermajority, and the effort to end abortion rights, an effort which may damn what had looked like a pretty unstoppable red wave in the fall. Even if you agree with the cultural agenda of the Supreme Court, consider this. Most of the cases heard by the court have nothing to do with the cultural issues that dominate headlines. Leonard Leo's multi-decade project isn't just about affirmative action or the right to choose. As big as those issues are, the billions of dollars being spent are targeted to do so much more. The goal is to enact a radical social and economic agenda that can never have been achieved legislatively or democratically because it's an unpopular agenda that's antagonistic to the interests of poor, middle, and working class people. And it's one that's extremely profitable for the rich. Why else would a billionaire spend well over a billion dollars and change on this interest? Rich people didn't get this rich by making bad investments. So let's talk about it. What is Mr. Seed investing in? Looking closely at the Supreme Court decisions decided by a 5-4 split offers a clue. You see, researchers looked at the Roberts court cases and drilled down on the 78 cases in which all five votes came from the conservative majority. In other words, it looked at cases that came down to a strict ideological divide to see what the true ideological goals of the court were. And what did they find? The cases all fell into four categories. One, controlling the political process to benefit conservative candidates and policies. Okay. Two, protecting corporations from liability and letting polluters pollute, three, restricting civil rights and condoning discrimination, and four, advancing a far-right social agenda. Now, I'm assuming we'll disagree ideologically about some of those categories, but let's focus on number two, where our interests are aligned regardless of our substantive politics. 
These are what I would call David versus Goliath cases. These cases concern how corporations use the courts to escape legislative accountability, how corporations create special rules that only they can play by. We know that the government is corrupt, the swamp needs to be drained. But part of the reason it's gotten so bad is that regulators have had their hands tied by legal decisions that limit liability for the corporations that poison our communities, kill us with addictive or defective medications, and defraud us with predatory schemes. But Roberts Court has found that unions can bargain away workers' rights to have age discrimination claims heard in court, it's held that consumers couldn't bring class action lawsuits against corporations for low-dollar, high-volume frauds. It's held that employers can use coercive contracts that force employees to waive their statutory labor rights. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad deal if you have a multi-billion dollar company and employees who want to exploit. But it's not such a good outcome if you, like most people, are a worker. Look, one thing I appreciate about conservatives is their preference for having laws established via the democratic process. I have been guilty of putting my hopes in an activist court, in part because the legislative process has become so gunked up by bad faith actors who, as we discussed, have little incentive to actually act on the policies their constituents want. But if we are going to call out left judicial activism, it's important to also recognize the legislative fiat that dark money conservative elites have been executing through the Supreme Court for decades. And if we really care about democracy, if we really want the country to be run by people and not billionaires of any political stripe, we have to get serious about getting money out of politics. So yeah, I, I've been watching David uh, Sirota at The Lever tweeting furiously about this and being very frustrated that people aren't really paying attention to this story. And I think it's difficult for folks to kind of put their heads around why it matters that one person would give a $1.6 billion donation. You know, what does this have to do with me that seems like very abstract? And I think it's partly because we haven't been having a robust public conversation about money and politics, the negative influence of it, for a really long time. Look, I feel very, um, I guess, differently than you on this issue. I, I don't think money in politics is a good thing, obviously. I don't think there's much way to get money out of politics. The stakes of politics are so high. When the stakes of politics, when when so much is on the line for powerful moneyed actors, when the government has vast sweeping power to allow you to develop this piece of land or to protect your intellectual property for this or to or to stop a competitor from coming into the country or to when they can do so much, people are going to spend moneyed interests are going to be are, are going to spend so much money to do it. And, and just having law, it sounds, well, we'll just have laws preventing that money being spent in that way. The, then more insidery people, then they have secret meetings with the congressmen. They you know, take them to steak dinners. They fly, take them nice vacations. They, capital can always find a way, I think, around these constraints. And actually, you end up just punishing people who aren't very well connected. And, and the only way they know how to spend, how, they know how to ha have influence over the government process is to, to just spend money. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of much more skeptical, I think, than you are, and maybe of David Sirota, that efforts to per like it's a noble goal. It's because this is not good. Moneyed, wealthy interest buying preferred policies from the government is absolutely bad. But it seems like the left is disproportionately focused on well, let's tinker with the rules so that they can't spend those money. Where, I, where I'm saying let's lower their incentive to do so by giving the government less power to reward them. Well, I think. And it's not just the left. I think the hero of this radar is really John McCain. The argument that he was making was not to tinker with the rules, but to limit 
how much spending happens during campaigns by making it purely publicly financed. So this is mm -hmm. something that happens in other countries where we see much less lobbying, much less corporate interest. To the point made in uh, the top of the show, Ron DeSantis arguing that part of why we don't have the ability to import drugs from cheaper countries is because of pharmaceutical lobbying. Mm -hmm. It's the largest lobbying uh, group in the country. You know, it has these effects. So what John McCain is saying and what other countries have done is to say you can only campaign for a certain part of the year. There are time limits on the, the length of campaigning, which cuts into the cost a great deal. And that you can only spend the money that is publicly raised. And that limits the, the size and scope of these campaigns a great deal. And it becomes a conversation much more about the issues and whether people are able to communicate to the public via televised debates and, and campaigning around the country versus whether or not they can simply blanket an area with advertisements that shut out any possibility of real discourse right. and debate. It, it goes to a very different uh, approach that you and I have. Uh, where you, like with the DeSantis example, you look at, well, what could, you know, what limits could we place on the pharmaceutical corporations' abilities to spend money to help elect congressmen who are going to support laws and support uh, appointments to the FDA that will be favorable to them. And I say, instead of doing that, what if the FDA had no power to stop Canadian uh, drug manufacturers from selling their drugs here? Like, I would change that. I would change on that. Because we can actually, we have a greater ability, in theory at least, to have a different government or to have a government with policies that are more sane or less restrictive. Whereas the limits on spending money, uh, and I'm sure you disagree with this, but at the, at the Supreme Court level, very decisively, have sort of been decided that it's hard to, that our, the Supreme Court has, has said, it's that it's speech, this kind of money, and and yes, they're, they're and, and that is the point on, of the yeah. radar that the Supreme Court got that way and made that decision expressly because people yeah. like this this I mean, billionaire donor, <laughs> the billionaire donor bought judges to create the kinds of outcomes that undermine our democracy. So I think that that really does prove my point. And regardless of what your politics are, if you want. The, your elected government to be responsive to the people and to have a democracy and to have a real democratic process, these kinds of multi-billion dollar donations from people like this who are literally writing the laws and structuring them in their own interest, not in the interest of the people, are, are a huge and ongoing problem. I, I think you're going to have such a hard time devising a system where the billionaires, the heads of the pharmaceutical companies, those people don't always have more, better, direct access to legislators and can't leverage them in some way to get the outcomes they want, even if they can't write checks to their campaign. Well, uh, every other uh, advanced industrialized country in the world who does not have this level of problem with uh, corporate lobbying and the openness with which we have corporate lobbying in the United States of America, those are examples that we can look to. It's hardly an impossible feat. All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was forced to pivot yesterday when reporters questioned her on President Biden's denouncement of MAGA Republicans. Let's watch that. The president thinks that there is an extremist threat to our democracy. Uh, the president has been clear, as he can be, on that particular uh, piece when we talk about a democracy, when we talk about our freedoms. Uh, the way that he sees is the MAGA Republicans are the most energized part of the Republican Party, uh, the, that extreme, this is an extreme threat to our democracy, to our freedom, uh, to our rights. Friend of the show, Philip Wegman, pressed Jean-Pierre on Biden's suggestion that Republican voters pose a threat to democracy. How does the president differentiate between the ultra-MAGA folks who he sees as an extremist threat to democracy and the average GOP voter? So, 
Um, can't talk about voters from here. Uh, as you know, no. Oh, no, I, I get you. Uh, not gonna, I just need to say that, right? Just to, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, I mean, the, the president has been, has been really clear about the leadership, right? The MAGA Republicans uh, in leadership. Uh, they're the ones who have the platform. Uh, they're the ones who, uh, again, the extremist part of the Republican Party. Uh, they're the ones who, uh, you know, folks listen to uh, in their own party. And by inciting violence, by trying to take away, they're the ones who are the legislators and trying to take away our rights, uh, trying to take away our freedoms. And that's who the president is speaking to. When the president is talking about preserving the soul of the nation and his threats to democracy, he's not referring to those individuals. He's talking about Republican leadership. Well, let me be, be very clear. It's not just Republican leadership. It's not just that blanket, right? He is talking about an, ex in an ex extreme portion, an like extreme uh, part of, of the party. Love Philip Wegman, best oppositional White House reporter there is. The press secretary's answers are certainly a change in tone from what the president himself had to say to voters last weekend. And for those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe, if you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. Okay. I take the point that if you, you know, you, you can make a critique of leadership that's separate and apart from the critique of the average Republican voter or Republicans across the board or even many Republicans who are in leadership but aren't quote unquote MAGA Republicans. If you want to make that distinction, you cannot coin the term MAGA Republicans because MAGA was the the, 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 the slogan of the President of the United States of America, which half of the voting public voted for. If you wanted to make a more discreet criticism of a more right-wing right. fringe aspect of the party, do that. But you really stepped in it if you want to call all MAGA-affiliated people a threat to American democracy. Yeah, it's just a terrible losing tactic. It, uh, it, I mean, it speaks to, I don't think it's as extreme or as um, kind of arrogant the way she uh, framed it, Hillary Clinton, obviously, with the basket of deplorables mm -hmm. comment, where she said, and, and what she actually said, if you go back and look at that comment, was that she was, she was referring to half, uh, not half of the country, but half of Trump's supporters and mm -hmm. voters. She said half of those people are irredeemable, mm -hmm. essentially. And, and that's... That's a large swath of the country you're Correct. cutting off entirely. That's not it. Tactically, that's not what you should say. That's not what no. you're supposed to say. And not that I care about giving free advice to Democratic figures, but say they've been they've been lied to and misled yes. by Trump. Yes. That he is he is tricking them and fooling them, and and he's not doing what they want. He's not making their lives better, but he's convinced them that he will make their lives better, and they've been tricked. Like that's what you got to say. Yeah. That's what Repu Republicans do not criticize Democratic voters. They say they harshly, I mean, they go wow. way overboard. Wait on a minute. They say, <laughs> when they say Democrats, they mean Democratic politicians. Uh, okay, but we did just run through a clip yesterday of Ted Cruz talking about how dumb bong-smoking baristas might actually vote because Biden did something policy-wise. And I take your point, he didn't say Democratic baristas, right. but right, I do yeah, think there's a they're not there getting, yes, they not They knock elite um, liberal. Baristas are elites now? Okay, not <laughs> socially very to the left, woke type people. Sure. That is, they are a punching bag, unfair, farther than more than they deserve. But they're not, um, they're not, they, they want to win over 
they know they're not winning some, those some people. Portion. They yeah, want to no. win over I, Democrats I who are, you know, just <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and another way woman, to go about doing this is, you know, to say, look, Democrats hate doing this, but Donald Trump said a lot of true things as he was diagnosing the problems in America. Things that other establishment actors and both parties were unwilling to say because they were in Congress voting for those policies uh, at the time. They mm -hmm. voted for the trade policies that sent jobs overseas. They voted for a lot of the economic policies that caused Americans to hurt. They voted and for Donald the Iraq Trump, War. They voted for the Iraq War. Excellent point. And Donald Trump was able to come in as an outsider and call all that stuff out. Barack Obama was also able to come, come in as a mm -hmm. relative newcomer to Congress, yep. not have any of that dirt on him and call that stuff out. Now, both of those men, I would argue, reneged on their promises. A lot of and them. did not fulfill their obligation them. to the American people. But that's the message. That's what you say. And you don't say that people were dumb for falling for it or that they were hoodwinked and too stupid to think for themselves, but that a promise was made and, and these, these men didn't follow through. And so then you articulate the reasons why you think you will be able to deliver differently than they will. I think getting money out of politics, not taking big corporate PAC money, all of those other kinds of things have a lot to do with whether or not you actually follow through on your promises once you're in office. Also, we've been having this conversation conversation about whether operating outside of the two-party system gives people more freedom to follow through and work for Americans as opposed to the DNC and the RNC and all of the corporate dollars that are mixed up in there. But whatever it is, what you don't do is say that a huge portion of the American people are irredeemable. It's not a, a morally appropriate judgment to make for someone who wants to be in charge of all of those lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is it too... It's not too early to say this, right? Karine Jean-Pierre is not, I don't think, as effective oh, as we haven't been saying <laughs> as uh, her predecessor. Um, yeah, she seems like a very lovely person. Nothing against her personally, uh, but uh, she's a little outmatched in this role. It's, I think it requires a bit more thinking and understanding the valence of the kinds of questions that you're getting right. than simply memorizing answers off of a book before the fact. You have to have a sufficient awareness of what your kind of ideological opponents are trying to get out of you, the story that they're anticipating, and to be able to answer questions in a way that don't seem defensive, but which also seem honest, and, and that are as honest as you're able to be obviously representing an administration that's not you and your personal instincts. Me, it's a very difficult job. It's not one that I would have wanted in this context because unless you are largely aligned with the principle you are going to be in a position where you feel like you have to be dishonest. I can't, right, I can't imagine doing it. It's a, it's really a job for a propagandist. Yeah. Some, and, I mean, and, it's your job to whatever whatever is going on to spin it as good. But and Jim Psaki was a propagandist. Didn't she work for a defense company before she she got this yeah, job? But Corinne Jean Pierre should have an easier job than Jim Psaki because things are going better yeah. for Biden right now. I mean, we're talking about that on, on the show a lot, and we're going to talk uh, about this uh, another example of uh, the Sarah Palin loss. In just a minute about uh, another example of, of wheels kind of falling off for Republicans. This massive red wave that's supposed to take place, guaranteed to have the House, maybe going to finally take back the Senate. Everyone dissatisfied with everything Biden's doing. Um, you know what? It doesn't look like that anymore. And so she should be. She should have an easier time touting the administration's successes. So it is a little bit of, of, of yes, un, unforced errors. In her defense, she does have to contend with Joe Biden going out and saying things. I think yeah. the fundamental, the original statement is the fundamental problem. Problem here. It is the fact that Joe Biden went out there and said that MAGA Republicans are a threat to our democracy. Right. Without con consulting with Biden, 
it's hard to spin. Why did so? It's clear that, uh, that media figures, kind of media, uh, democratic voices, love the whole threat to democracy framing. I mean, like CNN and MSNBC are obsessed with it. You know, the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. They all want, all, all want it to be about how democracy is under siege. Which, to my, regardless of if that's true or not, does not just from a ser uh, attack speaking to what people care about. Look, I know that animates right the people who watch CNN and MSNBC. And I'm not saying but they're not important anymore. issues. Well, not, not anymore. anymore. You can't but it doesn't be at animate a 10 people. All the time. Yeah, you can't. People's adrenal glands blow out. Yeah. We've, been, we've been told we are in a straight state of heightened emergency for like six years now. Mm -hmm. Trump is the end of America. Trump is the end of the world. Trump is the end of democracy. There actually is the one sixth moment, which doesn't look great. Optical disaster for Republicans. Really bad. But you've already been telling people that it was disaster time forever. And so you're con you're trying to continue that narrative, even though we don't have people literally outside the Capitol right now burning, you know, you know, bur burning down the, the way they, I mean, they seize on every news, which, you know, not there should be a probe and investigation to you know what happened at Mar-a-Lago with the with the uh, the the boxes and the documents and everything. But a photograph of the documents so on the ground. Has oh almost like a week wow! Of now it's it. Now we've got him. Yeah. It, it, and it is ridiculous. And look, I say this: if Democrats want to not seem like the boy who cried wolf, if they want their right. good moments to hit yeah. or their takedowns of the conservatives to hit, you have to be more judicious. And that includes not using overly broad language yes. like MAGA Republicans yeah. are a threat to our democracy. January 6th was the wolf. Fair enough. Everyone had as much right to be really upset about that because that was crazy. It was wild. On a historical scale, really crazy. But so many people weren't listening because they'd already heard he'd already been impeached once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. We'll have more of this to discuss coming up next. Stay with us. The Fed's attempt to curb inflation by raising interest rates has sparked concerns among some that the move could send the U.S. economy into a recession, with troubling signs in the housing market sending up red flags first. According to Politico, mortgage rates nearly doubled in the first half of the year, and new home sales last month were down 30 percent from the previous year. With home purchases down and mortgage demand at a 22-year low, real estate investor Graham Stevens says a storm is brewing in the housing market. Economics professor and co-founder of Democracy at Work, Richard Wolf, joins us now to weigh in. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So how dire is the situation? You know, what are the indicators you're looking at uh, when you're evaluating what's going on? Well, it's well known in economics that the housing market is a crucial part of our economy, not just for the question of how many uh, houses or homes or apartments are changing hands, but because when housing is built, then there's orders for furniture and appliances, and so it has a ramifying effect. Any drop of significant size in a short amount of time, which is exactly what we have now, is a, a clear sign that we're heading into a recession. Not that we lack for signs, there are plenty more of them, uh, but we are now in the unspeakable difficult situation of having put our working people through a pandemic that wasn't well handled, to be kind, through a crash in 2020 and 21, second only to the Great Depression, then an inflation still going on, and now we're going to give them the unemployment, or to quote the Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, the pain in our society of unemployment coupled to rising interest rates. This is a level of 
whacking the mass of our people that goes a long way to explaining the kinds of political and other splits and hostilities that are all around us. So, Professor Wolf, I take it that you don't agree with the Fed's plan to kind of force unemployment uh, to try to curb uh, the crisis. What do you, uh, to what do you attribute the root? What is at the root of causing uh, the inflation crisis? And what would you do, what would you recommend to try to address it in the alternative? Let me go in reverse order to your questions, which are, you know, spot on. Uh, the remarkable thing about what the Fed is doing is behaving and talking with complete complicity of both the Democratic and Republican leaderships, as talking as if raising interest rates is the only way to deal with an inflation. First of all, there ought to be some humility. The Federal Reserve was a created in the United States over a century ago with the number one task of what's called maintaining price stability. And inflation is the opposite of that. So the Federal Reserve didn't do its job real well. It waited too long. It did too little. And here we are with eight or nine percent uh, inflation. But raising interest rates never was and is not now the only way to go. Why are we not having a debate? For example, in 1971 August, with a conservative Richard Nixon as president, we had an inflation and the president acted. He declared a wage price freeze. Overnight, the inflation stopped because it became illegal for any business to raise their prices or for any workers to raise their wages. I'm not arguing we should do it or we shouldn't. Every, every policy response has its problems. But we're in a very strange country that pretends that there aren't options. Roosevelt in the 1940s put the market aside altogether to stop an inflation and substituted government rationing. We all got ration books and we tore out stamps in order to buy gasoline, milk, meat, sugar, coffee, and a whole host of other things. That's another way to stop or prevent an inflation. We're not having a debate. We're acting as though raising interest rates is the only way to go. And of course, that hurts the poorest people the most because they can't afford higher interest rates, or at least not as well as people that are richer. So this is a peculiar choice that whacks the, ma the mass of people. And as I just finished trying to explain, that's a very weird choice after the inflation has hurt them so much and the crash and the pandemic. Uh, it's remarkable that you don't go after those who are most able to pay extra taxes, to deal with a wage price freeze, for example, as, an, uh, as a way to go. You could freeze the prices, let the wages go up, and that would get you two for one. You'd stop the inflation, prices can't go up, and you do something about the inequality by allowing the wages to go up at some limited rate while the prices can't. And so you'd get less inequality and a stopped inflation. That we don't even discuss this when a Republican president did it not all that long ago is a remarkable thing. Now, as to why the, the inflation we have is a problem in the first place, well, let's all remember something that economics teaches and that a lot of folks seem to forget. Only a very small number of people in our society are in the position of deciding what the price of anything is. Those people are called employers. Employees don't make that decision. Employers do. 
Good services doesn't matter. It's the employer who decides whether to keep the price what it was, raise it, or lower it. And so if you have an inflation, it means that employers, less than 1% of the American people, are in fact deciding to raise prices. And the rest of us, the other 99%, we're required to pay them. Now, this is remarkable because when you ask employers, well, why did you do this thing, which hurts so many of us, they have an awkward moment. The honest answer would be, we did that for the same reason we do everything, to make more profit. That's what we're in business to do. That doesn't play well with people. So they have to come up with other arguments. Supply chain disruptions, China, Ukraine. I mean, grasping around for anything that will justify what they did. And worst of all, many of the media treatments of this don't go to the question, why did the employers do it? They jump nicely over it and start taking seriously the excuses that are given, sometimes true, often not, as if that were the necessary way to answer the question. But I mean, Professor, the the, uh, the businesses are always profit-seeking, right? Their motivations haven't changed substantially. They're profit-seeking during periods of economic hardship, and they're profit-seeking during uh, periods of economic boon. So I, I, we have, we ourselves have pointed to. So you know, correct us if you have a different view of it. Uh, the Ukraine war and the disruption to the supply chains as things that you could single out as, as you know, what's different about right now? Well, what's different about right now? One thing is the U.S is arming a Ukrainian uh, resistance to continue a conflict uh, with Russia that has had you know, massive ramifications on uh, the, 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 food, the supply of food, the supply of, of energy, and, uh, and other things. So are you, are you saying you know, that's kind of being falsely uh, painted as, as, as a, a major contributor to our current situation? Yeah, I think it plays some role. There's no, there's no problem bringing it in. Every particular experience of inflation has its particular causes right then and there that are unique to that moment in history. But it's the more basic one that ought to be part of the conversation that isn't, which is we have a we let decisions about prices, which affect all of us, be decided by a single tiny minority of our people whose focus is not on the impact to all of us, but on the bottom line of their businesses. If I were to give a long list, I would add to those you mentioned, the fundamental profit drive, which is governing, and then to remember that over the last two years, 2020 and 2021 particularly, many, many businesses had a terrible hard time they didn't make the profits that they had hoped to. They didn't make the economic growth that they had hoped to and invested in and borrowed on the basis of. So they had some catching to do starting in the latter half of 2021. And they did it in the easiest, quickest way to recoup profits in a short amount of time by jacking up their prices big time in a hurry. and and. To leave all that out, again, has this peculiar quality of not talking about who's actually doing the inflating of prices and what are the complex reasons. And do we really, as a society, want to let that way of making so basic a decision as the price level we live with 
for all of us to absorb when we have no say in making that decision. Professor Wolf, maybe help us understand what's going on specifically with the housing market in particular. You know, millennials as a generational cohort have been hurt I think the worst uh, among all generational cohorts and are really looking down the barrel of even worse outcomes. And people are curious about what is causing uh, home prices uh, to be so high, uh, mortgage rates to be so high, why it is that there's this lack of builder confidence. Is it, is it, does it have nothing to do with these supply chain issues where there has been a conversation about construction materials and things like that not being as accessible? Is it related to this broader issue we've been talking about for some time about there being a housing deficit in the country? Generally speaking, is it because millennials uh, tend to be suffering under the burden of student debt payments that are going to get some relief because of Biden's recent policy, but still uh, trouble the bulk of the of our generational cohort? You know, what to what do you attribute the particularized issues with housing costs? Well, we have a, a number of, of factors that come together. There's no particular magic bullet that explains it all. There rarely is, and there isn't in this case. Uh, let's go through a couple of them that are important. You picked one, absolutely true. We have a new generation of people uh, who are coming through uh, college educated, therefore likely to get a reasonably better job than if you're not college educated, but now carrying levels of debt that in a way undo what college educations used to mean. You would get a good job, but you wouldn't be saddled with debt. So now we have a generation that has a whole new set of problems because of the debt, and, and Mr. Biden's relief of that debt is too late and too modest to make much difference there. And one of the first basic expenses people can go without is getting their own a place to be. Uh, a record statistic these days is the proportion of millennials and others who are living with their parents, living in a home that isn't theirs uh, for long, years and years at a time, uh, in a way we haven't seen for a very long time in, in our culture's history. Then we also have, the again, the profit motive. Builders of homes are going where the profit is. If you remember that for the last 30 years, the, the gap between rich and poor in this country have gotten much larger, well, the profit is in building luxury housing. The profit is in building housing where the market is flush and can afford it, not in the vast majority of Americans who are having a hard time coping with the range of expenses they have. And if you put on top of that an inflation, well, you know, you, you're overloading uh, the situation to make the kind of crisis that we have. Uh, if you had a public housing program, as for example, virtually every country in Europe does, then you would have the government stepping in in moments like this in order to smooth out the crazy housing market, which goes way up and then way down in the way that we're experiencing. If I could say a last word about the supply chain uh, uh, shocks or disruptions. Mm -hmm. Every significant corporation in America has a department called the purchasing department, and there's a purchasing manager. And the job of the purchasing department, and this has been true for a century, is to deal with, get ready, disruptions in the supply chain. That's their job. 
if you can't get lumber and you're a chair maker, if you can't get lumber from where you used to get it, you're supposed to have in place a plan B and a plan C, an alternative supplier, an alternative supply route. That's your job. You can't come to the CEO and say, there's been disruptions. And the CEO will look at you with a funny look and explain to you, you're the purchasing manager. That's what you're there for. We pay you the big bucks so that you arrange for and have good relationships with the ways to get around these disruptions, which are normal in most business situations and are not peculiar now and certainly not in the level of explanatory power that folks want to give to them. Well, Professor, thank you so much for shedding some light on this situation. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to speak with you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Investigations into parents of transgender children who've received gender-affirming treatment have sent the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services into crisis. In a recent brief, 16 former and current employees revealed that a mass exodus of staffers sparked by the controversial policy could bring the department to the brink of collapse. Back in June, a judge in Texas temporarily blocked such investigations on the grounds the policy will cause, quote, immediate and irreparable injury to families. Over in Florida, where Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has vehemently opposed gender-affirming procedures for children, some hospitals have already stopped treating trans youth. They've canceled pending surgeries and chosen not to take on new patients looking for treatment for gender dysphoria. In response, the California State Assembly passed a bill Monday that seeks to provide refuge for trans teens and their parents. State Senator Scott Weiner, who introduced the bill, said in a statement, California must stand with LGBTQ kids and their families, especially when they're under attack across the country. Parents should never be separated from their kids or criminalized for simply allowing them to be who they are. Joining us now to discuss this culture battle is our rising panel. Max Alvarez is editor-in-chief of The Real News, and Amy Tarkanian is Republican strategist and former chairwoman of the Nevada GOP. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Uh, Amy, I'll start with you. You know, there's been a lot, especially in the last few days, there's been a lot from Twitter, from people like uh, Matt Walsh, other conservatives. There's been a lot of um, uh, uh, criticism directed at several uh, children's hospitals. There's been a debate over how young the so-called gender-affirming hysterectomies are being performed with that, you know, the libs of TikTok account got um, to uh, callers at the hospital to say that actually they do provide them for people much younger than, um, than 16. And then the hospital put out a statement saying, no, that's not true. And I don't know who, you know, who necessarily to believe. The Washington Post thinks they know who to believe, but I'm not sure it's that clear. Uh, you know, how, should, uh, how, how do you feel about the way conservatives are approaching this issue? Because I think there is a lot of um, concern that some of this stuff is, is happening at far too young an age. And then there's also kind of a lot of just craziness about this that's, um, that's maybe going too far. But, you know, what are your thoughts? Sure. Well, one of my dearest friends is actually trans, but she did not, um, you know, switch over until she was an adult. And so we've had this conversation numerous times, and we both agree that as a minor and definitely somebody who is not, you know, fully going through pre- uh, puberty, 
Um, I don't agree that they should be um, making these major changes. Uh, I don't agree also, though, that we should be separating these families because if this is still acceptable by law to have these families choose to have their children go through these major changes, then I think we need to keep the, the families together. There's no need to send Department of Family and Social Services. Mm. They're not doing anything um, you know, with ill intent. They're just trying to take care of their child. Um, but I do think that, you know, more leaning more towards like what Governor DeSantis is suggesting of psychiatric or psychological help until the child is not a minor and has gone through puberty. Yeah, this is what's so frustrating about this conversation because that type of psychological support is a part of gender affirming care, the likes of which is now being criminalized in the state. So, you know, gender affirming care encompasses at least four categories of care, you know, two of which are entirely reversible, non-permanent, one of which is partially reversible, that's hormone therapy, and one, the gender-affirming surgeries, which get the bulk of the attention here, which is obviously the uh, more difficult to reverse aspect of it. But social affirmation, allowing a child to identify as the gender that they uh, identify as, you know, letting them cut their hair, or grow their hair, wear the clothes that feel appropriate to them, and puberty blockers are a level of care that, uh, uh, is often erased from this conversation and yet is being stigmatized under these laws. Max, I wonder what you make of this. Well, you know, people can take or leave my opinion on this for whatever it's worth. And, and you know, frankly, I think a lot of it is not like my place to say. I'm a cis man here, right? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy who interviews workers for a living. But, you know, I also do have a Ph.D. in history. And as a historian, right, I can see where all of this is headed. Right. I know what happens to societies that convince themselves that certain outgroup minorities are the ultimate evil that need to be eradicated. And I mean, you know, Jesus, we're, we're, I say like where I can see where this is headed in a lot of ways, we're already there. I think we kind of paved over the reality in the intro there. But, um, you know, like the, there was a bomb threat called into Boston's Children Hospital because of this crap. And then one day after Fox News was directing people at another hospital in Chicago. Right. Teachers are being run out of the profession at a moment when we're experiencing a nationwide, quote unquote, teacher shortage. Right. And, you know, at that point, frankly, I don't think there's a debate to be had. I'm not interested. And I know I'm going to disappoint a lot of people here and I'm going to get a lot of people angry at me because they want, you know, us to sort of debate, you know, the, 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 the nature of gender affirming um, care, uh, you know, whether or not trans people have a right to exist. Frankly, when we've reached the point that we've reached right now, I don't see a debate to be had. I see a side that needs to be picked. And I think every single person who is watching this needs to answer for themselves. Are you going to sit back and let this happen? Or are you going to be your brother's keeper? And are you going to stand with your fellow workers, your neighbors who are currently under attack? That is frankly where I think we are at this uh, at the point that we're at at this country. And I think it's really scary and sad, but I'm done, you know, like doing this sort of back and forth debate. I see people under attack. I see working people under attack. I see kids who are future members of the labor movement under attack. And I, as a cis, you know, uh, a, a dude, 
want to help and defend them however I can. That's kind of where I am right now. I'm sorry if that disappoints people. Well, Harley, uh, Amy, I wonder w what you say to that, because you say, you know, you have a trans friend. You don't necessarily agree on a personal level to the extent that any of our personal opinions really matter here. I take Max's point there. But on a personal level with perhaps minors engaging in, in some of the more permanent kinds of surgery. But at the end of the day, you object to the idea of mobilizing state resources to break up families and make certain kinds of legal behaviors criminal in this context. What do you make of the broader choice? by so many conservatives to kind of front load this issue and make what is a pretty discreet conversation that's happening re relatively rarely in independent families across the country into this national polarizing issue that is really motivating people in school boards and in more significant elections across the country. Well, I think the concern is the major push that's been going on with the youth. I have a very close friend whose daughter is now goes by they, them. And her reasoning is, you know, when she sees mom and dad fight at home, she thinks that if she tries to change herself, and she's actually said this, you know, that maybe if she goes and dates someone of the same gender or someone who is also, uh, you know, considering a different gender, uh, that maybe her life will be different as she's growing up. She's only 12. So, you know, they've allowed her to cut her hair, color her hair, wear whatever she wants, but they're going to hold out on actually making changes to her body that she may regret later on in life. And, you know, I was actually at a, a tennis tournament for one of my daughters in California not too long ago. And they didn't just have the American flag on the flagpole, but they had the, the um, LGBTQ flag. You know, why are we pushing this in, in elementary schools. Uh, that's where I think the major concern is. I'm not concerned about a person wanting to make that choice. I would just hope that they would make that choice maybe when they're 18 or older as an adult, once they've gone through puberty, so that way there's no regrets. Or at, what, at whatever age. So look, I, I largely agree with what you said, Amy. And I don't think I don't think most people. Look, it's not my business, you know, right? Other whatever families and doctors and and teens of an appropriate age decide. It doesn't really concern me. Like you, I think it'd be crazy and, and actually backfire against conservatives to bring in like child services. Like, what if they're going to start child services can start investigating families for being too religious or something like that? It's like we don't want to second guess families or give the government the authority to second-guess families' choices. That would backfire spectacularly against conservatives. Um, but what happens, like you said, what happens in the schools, what's taught in schools is a matter of public policy far more than, you know, at, what a, you know, at whatever age teenagers can consent to sex and marriage and other responsibilities, I think they can obviously consent to surgery. Um, but the, the, what is mobilizing people uh, the school boards and all that is, is you know, when they see, t right, teachers talking about, uh, you know, the videos of teachers talking about concepts they're introducing to young kids in the classroom mm -hmm. relating to gender and sexuality, and they don't want that. But, Robbie, they don't want I, that. That's <laughs> a little bit different than what Amy said. Correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, but you made reference to an LGBT flag flown at a sports event as some, no, it's, act know. it's actually on the school flag pole. So okay, it's, on a school it's flag there. pole, yeah, I completely mm -hmm. concede that point. I, I, I think I'm just not as scandalized by it. I mean, the point I'm trying to make 
is we see prisoner of war flags flying at school events and on public property and, and, sure. and you know, Caribbean sure, pride flags and Italian day flags. The, and Right, but that's not at the school and you're not at school to talk about who you're attracted to or, or what gender that you would prefer. You're right. at school to learn math, reading, science and arithmetic. Well, and it, once it's time to do, um, you know, sex ed, at the appropriate age and usually you know that starts in junior high but maybe in fourth and fifth grade you know is when you start talking about okay your bodies are going to change here's some deodorant <laughs> you know it's not what gender would you like to be in would you like to wear a binder you know it gets well, to be it's Amy, a little was that the conversation that was being had? I, I'm just trying to focus on what you you brought up this idea that an uh, LGBT flag on a sports field at school or wherever it was at school is in and of itself an issue. And I think that part of what is frustrated in some folks on the left is that even the most de minimis, there, there's an unwillingness, I think, to engage in certain arguments about what's going on at the most extreme end of you know, transition surgeries, because some of the folks that are engaged in the conversation also have an issue with what a lot of people consider to be not that big a deal, which is just an LGBTQ flag. I had lots of right. flags at my and, school. And I, and and I what do you want to accept about what if they're praying, the praying on the during the you're, game? You're, you're allowed but, to. I mean, right. that, that's exactly well, no, the point. actually, you're not allowed to pray anymore on, well, this, on this, campus. This, this, they used to have that, but they don't do that anymore. However, I know the LGBTQ flag is probably that, just to show, hey, everyone is welcome here on campus. And I get that. But then why not just keep the American flag? So then that way it, it completely stays out of any type of conversation at all. Uh, Max, we want to give you a chance to respond. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to be quick. You know, one, you know, I appreciate all the points, um, but again, I think there, there's, you know, we need to look at the reality that's actually in front of us. You know, if we say that prayer doesn't happen at schools anymore, I challenge anyone to go to any high school football practice. We did that all the time. We did it before every single game. I know people who still do it, right? It happens all the time. So let's pump the brakes on that. And also, I would just say from a labor perspective, having talked to, you know, a lot of teachers over the course of my life, knowing a lot of teachers um, over the course of my life, what we're really talking about is not, you know, like, uh, teachers indoctrinating students with quote-unquote gender ideology on a day-to-day -day level the way that this manifests is are teachers allowed to you know essentially make their students feel welcome in the classroom right that's really what the issue is is it are there going to be students there sitting worrying about you know like uh, being themselves because they might get beat up they might get vilified they might be uh, uh, uh not recognized for the people who who they are i can say as a person of color that i've experienced that in a classroom and it really hurts my ability to learn so that's what i see when we're talking about whether or not you know we can even acknowledge the existence of trans people or students who may not you know feel comfortable with the gender they were assigned at, at birth but again I, that's not really my place to to say um what i will say though going back to where we started at this because we started talking about texas and I, this is a point i want to leave people with because i think that the texas example is a depressingly perfect example of how pointless, vicious, and self-destructed this feverish war on queer and trans people is. From hurricanes and droughts to floods and heat waves, Texas is getting absolutely pummeled by climate change. The grid is failing, leaving people stranded without heat in the winter, without air conditioning in the summer. Inflation continues to beat the living hell out of working people. There's an affordable housing crisis across the state 
and and hedge funds are buying up every available house and yet the texas minimum wage is still 725 an hour out of 50 states texas is 13th in childhood poverty and as you mentioned at the beginning brie the texas department of family and protective services is hemorrhaging staff and the biggest uh, loss is coming in child services which means that the people who are entrusted at, at an already overburdened state agency the people who are entrusted to protect children including foster children many of whom i have in my own family they are not able to do their jobs because they're either being told to focus on this or they're quitting because they refuse to participate in this witch hunt of trans kids and their parents right so we are just destroying all the basic things that working people need to you know instigate this this witch hunt it's destroying all of us it's really hurting people and i and i i again i think that people need to pick a side the the time for debate is over we need to stand up for one another stop this being a parent does not somehow magically give you the right to hurt other people yes we should have a conversation about best how to best handle this as a society but the way that we're handling it now is not that Hmm. Well, so if I could, I, obviously, I don't agree with the Texas law, however, and I also don't agree with the fact that, uh, you know, trans people should not exist. They should exist. It's just the main concern I think that most conservatives at least have, at least ones that I know, is the fact that it's being pushed on minors and it will be irreparable if they want to make that change in the future. Hmm. Well, Amy and Max, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, More Rising right after this. The FDA has approved COVID booster shots that target the BA5 Omicron variant. This is the first time a new formula has been approved since COVID vaccines were approved at the end of 2020. The CDC is expected to give their approval today, clearing the way for shots to get in arms following the holiday weekend. The FDA's approval is being met with some criticism because of the lack of full clinical trials. Instead, the agency based its decision on the current vaccines and testing on mice. It's the same strategy we currently use for the flu shot. Here's CDC Director Rochelle Lewinsky on the matter. There's always a question here of being too slow versus too fast. Um, and I think one of the challenges is if we wait for those data to emerge in human data, not just mice data and human data, um, we will be using what I would consider to be a potentially outdated vaccine. Hmm. Look, I have been perfectly clear on how I feel about this. I want people should be allowed, even without the CDC's approval, or the FDA's approval to take medical products that if they consent to take it the guy this is again a philosophical issue i don't think the government should come between if you want to do this doctor wants to give it to you there's consent consent has been reached you're an adult fully capable of making your own decisions and the government says well it knows better it's not going to let you and they they've dragged their feet on so many things before that said now all that aside i think it is important to eventually get this data and if people have hesitancy about taking this because there has only been research on mice, I think that is perfectly understandable. It would be crazy to mandate or require anything like this, from my view, um, uh, without having, I mean, I wouldn't require it mandated in any, even if we had the data, but to do it, to do so without data, clearly we need, some people need the clinical mm -hmm. data to reassure them that this is safe. Sure, yeah, so first and foremost, I do think that 
the context of the level of testing being similar to what we do with the flu vaccine, you know, will be reassuring to a lot of people. I think that makes sense. Of course, that doesn't preclude there being some potential issue, which we will find out about, to your point, once people start getting boosted and we track what the effects have been. Now, it is frustrating because I think a lot of people have rightly pointed to the lack of transparency mm -hmm. and the lack of conversation in a mainstream way around some of the evidence that's come out around the original COVID vaccines. And people might have skepticism that we will eventually ever have an honest conversation now about any vaccine or any medication that comes down the pike because of the, how, how the CDC has been um, conducting itself. But I just see an article recently asking, you know, can the CDC inform, uh, reform itself. There is obviously an internal conversation happening at the organization about trying to remedy some of the mistakes that have been made over the last two years. It was very satisfying to hear Walensky concede that there needs to be to be major reform, and there needs to be, and there's not enough acknowledgement of of diff, individual difference. It could be the case that your that the risk to you of of a a medical uh, product that has not had human clinical Testing. Well, you know, if you're in a very at-risk category for COVID, if you're very ill, if you're very elderly, um, maybe the small risk that there's something bad about this vaccine is absolutely worth taking because your risk for COVID, even a second or third infection, is, is so much more significant. Mm -hmm. And that could be true for you and not true for a younger person who is very healthy and, they might, and whatever even small downside potentially of a vaccine that's not had that clinical data, that could still be higher for you than, than the risk of, of COVID if you've already had it. Who knows? Yeah. It could, it's different for different people. And that's what's so frustrating, that so much of the pandemic response was not at the level of individual choice, but was at the level of, well, no, here's what we think everybody needs to do. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I also think it'll be exciting for folks to get a booster that's actually targeted to the variant that's in the right. area right now. Right. It's been a long time. You know, I, it's, it's anecdotal, but it did feel like a lot of people who did get vaccinated and boosted were largely able to avoid COVID that first summer, at least as we opened things back up, because it was well to well. You're you're a little bit not more typhoid, of a, Robbie. <laughs> typhoid Robbie. Don't tell the, the world my nickname for you, Robbie. She literally does call me that. And <laughs> and out of affection, of course. But yeah, like I, I do think that the prospect of getting to a level of protection that we had in the summer of 2020 will inspire a lot of people who have fallen off of the kind of booster cycle mm -hmm. regime, myself included, to want to maybe plug back in, and I look forward to hearing more numbers about that. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has acquired 170 million updated COVID boosters for a fall and winter vaccination campaign. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. We've been uh, working for months to be prepared for this moment and to get shots into arms this fall and through the end of the year. So we are prepared uh, to do that. Uh, so with FDA's authorization, doses can be shipped now to tens of thousands of sites nationwide and shots in arms can start as soon as possible after CDC issues uh, its recommendation later this week. All states have ordered doses already. Meanwhile, HHS is expected to run out of funding to buy and distribute COVID vaccines as early as January. We'll also run out of its federal supply of several treatments in the first half of 2023. The federal government will also end its offer to ship free at-home COVID tests. Yeah. I am not, well, you might disagree on this. I will not mourn the end of the free COVID test government. It's like, we, we never do enough with that. Like... People test, uh, I don't think the tests are, 
you can be sick and have COVID and it takes a while for you to actually test positive for it. I mean, that, that's been true. Maybe that's not true, right? This goes in phases, right, with different variants for how reliable the tests are being targeted the variant. Um, People can, I mean, the tests are available in store and they cost a little bit of money. Um, Look, some of them cost a lot. Some, some of them, them cost don't. a lot, Robbie. And you we have to remember, not everyone thinks that, you know, a $14 purchase is incidental to their budget. And the reality is it's not just the cost of the thing, it's the convenience of getting it. Look, when I felt sick, and had tested negative at the beginning of the weekend and a few days went by and it was a Monday night and I was thinking, all right, I'm gonna go in to rising in the morning, let me test just one more time. I used one of those Biden tests that I had a big stack of. I didn't think, oh, I have to save these tests because I wanna save the money, I don't have to replace my stockpile. I double tested, even though I had just tested like the day before and it came out blaringly positive. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I saved everybody from having to come here and, and me being the typhoid Mary of mm. the rising studio. So look, I definitely not, a, I'm not against the testing. It just seems like it's not the whole ship it to people. Like if, in some very ideal world, right? If you could just, you know, every day before you go or uh, kids, before, if we have so much concern about kids in schools, I want them to be unmasked and generally unrestricted. You know, what if everybody you know, takes a quick test as they it, it was very easy to do it right before they came to the building. It's super reliable. And you send someone home immediately if they're test positive like that. There are ways for me to conceive of really robust testing doing public uh, public good mm -hmm. actually at the beginning. Uh, of the pandemic, that's how I thought we would eventually get back to normal. Mm -hmm. uh, was a lot of people were talking about the testing because I didn't, I didn't expect the vaccines uh, based on how long it takes for vaccines to come out. Mm -hmm. I thought the vaccines would, could still be two to five years away, mm -hmm. if and then and then maybe only work as well as the flu vaccine and not very not really prevent cases. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking it was going to be we're going to live in a world where there's just t you, you go to the restaurant, you take a test, there's going to be testing sure. everywhere, and they were actually going to have some enforcement for it. So I thought that's what was going to happen. So that didn't happen. At all. Right. The vaccines ended up coming out a lot faster than we thought. It initially looked like the vaccines were preventing transmission as well. Then that <laughs> we've sure. gone through several permutations. So are you saying that you would prefer there be a different kind of testing regime than sending tests at home? I think in my ideal world, I would have I would have viewed testing as a massive test, like a mass mass scale, a huge investment in testing, as a as a good way to get back to normal without having super coercive So you want the government to do more. <laughs> or, yeah, this is what you're trying to give me. <laughs> if the government is going to do something, I thought massive investment in testing beyond just shipping it to people. Okay, so I don't think these things are, are mutually exclusive. Um, you know, we talked about this yeah. a little bit when you came on my podcast last week, but I do think, you know, if you do care about kids, let's say in this DC school situation yeah. where they're requiring uh, vaccines, you care about them being man, uh, vaccinated instead of a mandate, have a, vac a vaccination center set up in front of the school, do those kinds of things. That's not happening, but I think people should be concerned. Right now we're in a lull. If we are in the middle of a new variant and have death spiking in hospitals overburdened and things like the way we've had in the past going into the winter, we're going to be really concerned that the government isn't maintaining its stockpiles and that it's going to start charging for the kind of interventions that are actually going to be life-saving at that point. Well, on this topic, when White House reporter Philip Wegman asked the press secretary on whether Biden will opt for another booster soon, Karine Jean-Pierre pointed to the president's natural immunity. How about that? She said, obviously, the president was just infected with Omicron and is really well protected, as you all know, against COVID, adding that while she doesn't have an update on timing, he absolutely will get an updated booster. Yeah, I think that this, this, this was originally why I didn't 
for myself, choose to get a booster because I because you got COVID so often. <laughs> I've only had it once. I've only had it once. Fair but I, I got vaccinated and uh, in April or whatever of 2021, and then COVID in July. So then I was like, well, I'm not going to get boosted. Right, I'm going to wait like six months or something at least before I get a booster, and then I just never ended up doing it. But yeah, you I do mean, have some. We know that you have some additional protection for some length of time. After yeah. you get COVID. I mean, the only issue is that it's not quite as long as people had hoped it would be. I think it's, what, only about a month or so? Well, now under, that's what they've said for the newer variant. That, yeah. that It seemed to be more robust than that for, I think, for the original and for Delta, maybe not for Omicron or what we're dealing with now. But, right. Um, Right. So after, you know, after I got COVID, I, I had my risk-taking behaviors and had the in-dining, in, inside dining experience. Oh, yeah? Were you, were you having a... That, that elapsed. My one-month period of oh risk, of, dare, oh, of daredevil activity has lapsed. But I'm going back to, look, it hurts no one. You're a libertarian. My body, my choice. You want me to live my own freedoms, want. and these are, these are my choices. But, yeah, I do think that we definitely need to keep an eye out on, you know, a particular eye out now on what happens with infection rates, et cetera, now that the government is basically saying that you are completely on your own. Infection rates, but that that should not be our benchmark. Hospitalizations, deaths. Well, that Those, too, but also, I'm sorry. Because we've, we've had spikes in infections that do not necessarily correspond right, with hospitalizations Right, but Robbie, we, we just had deaths. a guest earlier this week, and people should definitely check that out, who was a doctor who talked about research that is really concrete about the reality of long COVID and how that's going to be a huge burden to our healthcare system and costs that we're all going to have to share ultimately. So oh. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of factors in, going I, on here. But in Washington, D.C., which is where I live, so I've paid closest attention to the data, the spike in cases produced by Delta and Omicron did not increase deaths statistically, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So we, we got to move. And that I remember having those conversations about how we need to move away from, uh, from cases. Um, all right, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. The Department of Defense-sponsored Warrior Games features liberal comedian Jon Stewart awarding a member of Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion at Disney World. The Gray Zone reports that multiple Ukrainian Nazis were invited to the happiest place on Earth by the Pentagon. But don't worry, his, black, his Nazi sorry, black sun tattoo was covered up when he received the award. According to Wikipedia, the black sun symbol is widely used by neo-fascists, neo-Nazis, the far right, and white nationalists. How interesting. I thought it was, uh, was wasn't it, it was disinformation to say that we were funding uh, Nazi fighters in the Ukraine, but uh, not only are they uh, using, uh, being protected by weapons and things we've made available for Ukraine, we're actually just giving them medals now, invitations to Disney World. Yeah, That's look, nice. I don't think, you know, it's not necessarily John Stewart's fault. To, you know, he didn't, I'm sure he didn't request, <laughs> can you please send one of the Nazis over to receive this award? <laughs> one Nazi, but, please. I mean, the fact that they keep, look, yeah. this, this is the conversation that keeps happening. Folks say, sure, there's neo-Nazis among the ranks of Ukrainian soldiers, but we also have fringe elements in our own military, and bringing them up and, and emphasizing their existence is simply a way to deflect from a war effort. It's a moral war, and we should be involved in that regardless. I obviously don't agree 
in the unlimited uh, spending on a war that has very little to do with uh, the interests of the American people. However, I, I can take that argument on its face. The problem is if you keep having moments where accidental Nazis keep showing up, it undermines the argument that they are so limited and so fringe in number. I would not expect to take a random member of the American military, you know, strip them down and see a white supremacist tattoo. No. It will you're, happen. Because you're not Tally 11. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm referencing that, uh, that time that fact checker um, claimed that in a, a photo of a, of a military, I think it was a, oh, was it? It was a military okay. officer, might have been a police officer, claimed they had a, a, a Nazi iron cross. But it, it was, was just not, like a Christian symbol a or something. Yeah, yeah look, it, and certainly it happens. And there are a lot of symbols that I personally find distasteful, but that aren't you know, a one-for-one one to white supremacy, you know, uh, Confederate flags and the like. I'm not wild about it. Mm. I would swipe left, but it's a thing that people have. You don't, you don't uh, put uh, must-have Punisher uh, <laughs> logos on their phones right. in your dating uh, app. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I do not. Yeah. But, like, at a certain point, it, and, it, and there's also, I think, a legitimate case that there is, it is a problem within our own military that there are, like, fringe elements. I think that that's, the, the 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 analogy there almost undermines your point about the our own issues with our own extremism in our country. It doesn't make it better that it's happening elsewhere. But at a certain point, it becomes super negligent. If you're covering up a tattoo, that means that somebody was aware of the tattoo and still chose to go ahead with this if it's being reported accurately. It underscores the point that in every conflict, there are always good and bad people on both sides. Yeah. It is always murkier than the... We want it to be this... You know, this World War II-esque moral contrast between the forces of good and an army of evil. And that's how we want to view every conflict. And apart from World War II, you can't ever really put that, that easy framing on things. We, you know, in our, in, our, in our adventures in the Middle East, we have had to work with groups who are engaged in violence and terrorism and have, and have uh, harmed women's rights and other people's rights. And we've done that because we think, well, they're pre preferable to these other guys or they're more sympathetic right. to the U.S. And that's what we're doing here yeah. because that's always what we're doing. But we can't and, – and, and we can determine, we can say, look, we think this is in our best national security interests, so we have to do this. I would argue that this is not necessarily in our best right. national security interests, but that's not even what they're saying. They're saying, right, this is a moral conflict between good and evil, and the, and the Ukrainian cause is good. And, and look, the cause itself – is correct. They yes. got invaded, got and they shouldn't be invaded. And he shouldn't be invaded. But look, I actually I disagree a little bit. I do think that there are. It is possible in many cases outside of just World War II to say that there are moral stakes that, arguably, ethically, America is called to defend. My issue with Ukraine is that that is never the metric by which we get involved, generally right. speaking. And when I asked people to help me understand at the beginning of this conflict, I was as I was trying to understand it. What justifies our intervention here and not an X, Y, or Z instance where there, I would argue, is an enormous um, moral call to act and intervene on the behalf of unambiguously vulnerable people across the world? No one could explain why, because the issue was not the moral issue. It's not like the, the Pentagon does a ranking of, of traumatized people on the planet mm -hmm. Earth and says, let's start at the top right. or let's see where the, what's, what's the biggest bang for our buck. You know, how many lives can this dollar of American money save? No, that's not how they're going about this at all. So I really balk at the idea of there being this um, moral call to justice when you have moments like this that obviously undermine the case. Mm.
Well, speaking of morality, across the pond, Europeans are grappling with soaring energy prices. But Germany's federal minister for foreign affairs has said their support for Ukraine will remain unwavering and voters be damned. Watch. But if I give the promise to people in Ukraine, we stand with you as long as you need us, then I want to deliver, no matter what my German voters think, but I want to deliver to the people of Ukraine. And this is why, for me, it's important to be always very frank and clear. And this means every measure I'm taking, I have to be clear that this holds on as long as Ukraine needs me. We are facing now a winter time where we will be challenged as democratic politicians. People will go on the street and say, we cannot pay our energy prices. And I will say, yes, I know, so we help you with social measures. But I don't want to say, okay, then we stop the sanctions against uh, Russia. We will stand with Ukraine, and this means the sanction will stay also in wintertime, even if it gets really tough for po politicians. The sanctions haven't even worked. That's a different issue. Yeah, also, no matter what my German voters think is quite an interesting admission. It, right, it's one, uh, it's one maybe our own American elected <laughs> officials could actually concede that the voters are not necessarily so down with this. Um, I mean, it's tacit, right? I mean, it, look, it is not the case that every time there's a majority of people who want something is necessarily great or moral right. or a good idea. Right. Although that's on foreign policy, if elected officials hewed closer to what the majority of Americans want on foreign policy, more than any other issue, I, probably in my view, you would have an improvement in policy. I mean, I think so, too, because who does war benefit? Who's profiting right, right now off of the, these excursions? And always the people have turned against, in, in the U.S., at least in my lifetime, at least since 9-11, the people have turned against Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, everything else before the elected officials, yeah. far before yes. the generals and the military, et cetera. Yes, the media was mad about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Biden's polls went up. Yeah. People were happy about it. It happens over and over again. So I don't know. It, it, is, it is frustrating that we only have the tacit admission of that here, but the explicit admission of it there. And when you look at who's profiting from this, when you look at the fact that you have a revolving door of Raytheon employees who are staffing the Defense Department, when you see the level of investment that these companies, I'm sorry, the, the theme of the day, for me at least, has kind of been lobbying powers hurting America. It was a theme of my radar. Today, yeah. and it, it keeps coming up in yeah. all of these segments. You can't look at Lloyd Austin you can't look at the you know secretary of defense coming straight from these companies you can't look at you know, Biden taking time out of his schedule to go down to the plant and what was it, Louisiana, and talking about how this was a good thing for America. You can't look at who exactly profits off of, off of sending these rocket launchers and things to Ukraine and not understand that this is just another, uh, you know, prong of the military industrial complex and a profit scheme for people who are absolutely not us and are not the people who are fighting and dying in this war. Katie Halper likes to say this a lot. The war in Ukraine will end through diplomacy one way or another, sooner rather than later. And people are making the argument that by escalating and, and sending weapons and showing force from Ukraine, it forces uh, Russia to the bargaining table. But with recent reporting that we covered here on the show this right. week, um, that we talked to Aaron Mate about uh, how, you know, in what was it, April, very, very early in the conflict, uh, or right before a, the they conflict, they had a model rather, for a deal. They had a model, they had a model, for, model a for a deal. deal. 
that the West undermined, yeah. right? They, they, you know, so the idea that we would stop if Russia went ahead and stopped, I'm sorry, it just doesn't, isn't borne out by reality and the facts and the history and the reporting on the table. And so people have to really start asking what's motivating this conflict and making demands of their politicians to do different. Now, it's going to be hard because the politicians are sitting here saying to your face, I'm not going to respond to democratic demands. I don't think in the case of, uh, of what guides our foreign policy and military ventures, I'm not, I'm not saying that it is not due to defense contracting and that sort of level. I absolutely think that has an effect. I think it is partly, and in my view, probably more so ideological. Uh, the, the state the deep state, the the military advisors are so ideologically uh, ideologically committed to a hawkish, you know, forced democracy on people. Well, yes, of. but that's part of it. It's also part of this uh, economic superstructure. But it's not just Glo- globalism lining their pockets. No, no, no it's or not something. just it's, because they believe they can do this. That the, the American military might can inst- can install. Democracy, well, and they must, and they can't admit that they're wrong and, because and, it undermines the entire decades and decades of this thinking. Which right, has and, never and they must to, I'm sorry, prop up our economic system that so many places around the world have tried to shirk because the way of the way that neoliberal policies hurt poor and working people. Part of the mm. bedrock of the conflict in Ukraine was that it was being torn between a kind of a Russian economic relief package and a Western economic IMF course of action that would force it into neoliberalism that would force wages down and hurt a lot of the people that are living in the country. And it was it's a it's a it's a Faustian bargain. Many people in the country were actually opting to move in line with the Russian version and that's when we had the what gets, what gets smeared as neoliberal. Well, this is probably a, a longer decision that's for it, a different time, but uh, <laughs> by liberal we mean like market forces the yes, north I'm european sorry. countries seem to if have really happy neoliberal economies that are very successful Look, if, and very If we believed in real democracy and self-determination, then when Venezuela, if it wants to be socialist, if Cuba wants to be socialist, if the USSR wants to do their thing, then we wouldn't have wars of aggression and sanction regimes that keep the people in those countries from having the, the kind of society well, we should, that they we want to structure. That, but, uh, and they, the reason their socialism fight, wouldn't be magically successful if we were nice Well, how will we ever know if we don't try to undermine it at every turn? I think we you know, well, we, There has never been a level of confidence that that would be the case that prevented the United States from going and intervening. The fact of the U.S.'s intervening intervention shows you how insecure they are about whether or not people would choose outside of being at the tip well, we of the gun, capitalism. Sure. We don't need to be insecure about it, but... <laughs> All right. We know. Whether it's the police state here at home that it's increasingly militarized. We can let everyone who wants to go to North Korea and be immediately imprisoned uh, as a assumed spy it's, if they want to. All right. So at the at the tip of the gun, Americans enforce capitalism here at home. No. no we talked about to. the Breonna Taylor raid. We talked about how they're forcing imminent domain slash. Breonna Taylor. What does that have to do with See, Brianna, every, Brianna Taylor is neoliberalism. This is the this is the Robbie, just, everything is neoliberalism. We just had a segment about how the there is a gentrific, gentrification regime where they were trying to do a high uh, right. de- a development project. So they were harassing residents in the area to try to clear it out for for development. I mean, all of these things are connected. And what the left tries to do is make the case for why we have to have international solidarity and why we have to be very skeptical of these kind of hyper militaristic arms. For me, the government violating people's private property rights is choices. not. Neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the government leaving people alone. All right. We'll have to keep debating that one, but we will have more rising for you for sure after this. 
Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin has lost her special election bid to represent Alaska's only U.S. House seat. Native Alaskan Mary Patola will be the first Democrat to represent Alaska in the House since 1973. Last night, a visibly upset Palin blamed her loss on Alaska's new ranked choice voting system. Let's watch. Choice voting. Yeah. When it comes down to second and third place votes, that's going to uh, decide who's, who's, who's going to win. I mean, really? Alaskans want Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> I don't know what Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi have to do with ranked choice voting. They are well, very opposed. Senator, uh, Senator Tom Cotton uh, came to Palin's defense, also calling ranked choice voting a scam to rig elections. He tweeted, quote, 60% of Alaska voters voted for a Republican, but thanks to a convoluted process and ballot of exhaustion, which disenfranchises voters, a Democrat won. Uh, this is sour grapes, sour grapes, and this goes to, it's, I'm so frustrated, it goes to the problem Republicans are having everywhere, mm. which is they are allow the party is allowing candidates who are too far right, who are too extreme, who are too weird, who are, Sarah Palin, uh, you know, was the, obviously John McCain's running mate in 2008. Uh, at, subsequent to that, she was like a failed reality TV star. She did not finish her own term as Alaska's governor. She resigned. Um, she's, a, she's a colorful character, the kind of uh, right-wing personality that voters are not super keen about. Voters do not want, in, in Republican circles. Yeah, but it was the golden age of reality TV. <laughs> So they, I don't know how many me more messages uh, can be sent that Republicans want or that, that voters want that Glenn Youngkin type candidates who are not personally uh, offensive to um, to independents, to people who don't always vote Republican, but are concerned about their schools and, and COVID and various things and are, are not satisfied with many Democratic policies and, and think Democrats maybe went too far on, on, on keeping things shut down or other aspects of Democratic extremism they want. Uh, they're more feeling it, feeling the Republican Party. They're yeah. not feeling Trump. They're not feeling the Blake Masters and the J.D. Vances or Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker or Sarah Palin's oh, return. So this blaming ranked choice voting is such a cop out here. It is. So it is true. It's interesting if you look at it. Mm -hmm. So the Republicans took 60 percent of the vote mm -hmm. because it's her, it's Palin and the other candidate, uh, Begich. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the overall winner was uh, so it was the, the Democrat, uh, Peltolta, Peltola, who she got 40 percent. Um, so she got more than Palin mm -hmm. individually. He got 31 percent and Begich got 28 percent. Mm -hmm. So Begich only got like three fewer points than Palin. Mm. So then he gets eliminated because mm -hmm. of ranked choice voting and his second choice. And so then his voters, whoever their second choice was, they get his votes. So you might be thinking, well, then Palin should win mm -hmm. because if she gets all of the, you know, shouldn't everybody who voted for the other Republican? Well, they're going to prefer a Republican. Right. Not enough of them did. A right. lot of those people said, so these were people who said, I want a moderate Republican. I, I want a Republican. I can't have that. I can't have Sarah Palin. And they opted for a Democrat over Sarah Palin. They didn't opt for a Democrat over a moderate Republican. They opted for a Democrat over Sarah mm. Palin. That's how much clearer can it be? Yeah, honestly, I think the, framing this and the way that some of the, the commentators there frame this as like, oh, you got a Democrat over Republican in those kind of partisan terms is really the problem at the root of the, mm -hmm. this country. I would love to be in a place where, you know, you, you got to acknowledge that there are these voters who don't feel that partisan. The largest political identification group in the country is independent. There are people who absolutely hated someone like Hillary Clinton, would have voted for someone like Bernie Sanders, liked someone like Donald Trump. That's all mm -hmm. one human being. And if you don't have a kind of politics that can accommodate those kind of nuances in people's political perspective, you're going to get some really terrible outcomes. So I, 
I love this. I love this outcome, not because a Democrat can win, but because the, the uh, th ranked choice voting is a an arrow to the heart. It's a it's a it's an axe to the heart of partisan politics Absolutely. and the capture that we they they have us in. This is why it's such a an important prong of Andrew Yang's forward party, and why despite some of my criticisms of the forward party, I am very encouraging of it going forward in its fight to get uh, ranked choice voting across the country. By the way, you can game these systems as well. If you are a Republican flank or a Democratic flank who wants to try to make sure that you can succeed in a mm -hmm. ranked choice ballot scenario, we saw this happening, I think, in um, a New York race last year. You can, oh, I think it was in the mayoral race. You can announce to your followers who you think the second choice should be yeah. in order to try to make sure that, you know. This is what they did. They're, it was they're very confusing people. to outsiders, but it made perfect sense. Right. And it's not an overly complicated system. It's right. allowing people who want to give a third party a chance. Maybe they prefer, you know, my candidate, Joe Jorgensen or something, who was right. a Libertarian Party ca Maybe. candidate from last time, or, or Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, or whoever it is. Uh, but there are so many voters who are discouraged from going that route because they're going to spoil right, the election. They hate, they hate Trump more than Joe Biden, or they hate Joe Biden more than Donald Trump, and they're like, well, I, I, it's going to be one of those two, so I have to vote for one of those right. two. If you do rank choice voting, you can actually vote for the candidate you really like, who's not those two, and then and then you'll see in the totals that maybe that candidate gets 11% of the vote right. rather than 2% of the right. vote. Still doesn't win, gets eliminated, and then the second choice person, then it can be your, I just can't see Trump be president, but I can't can see Biden. you can vote and register your preference yeah. and start to grow alternative parties exactly. over time. And that's exactly what Democrats and people then will take don't note when the, on the first When the first elect, the first ballot is, oh wow, this alternative party, this third party candidate did a lot better, then people will pay more attention to that candidate right. and the policies and the ideas they're running on. Right. Yeah, so we're, <laughs> ranked choice voting, I, I absolutely, for the success of third party candidates, I, I said this before on the show. I think it's so utterly dependent on changing the structure of voting, uh, of the kind of s systems we use, because the best messaging in the world it cannot break through the two-party duopoly right. without an ability to express a preference, like through a ranked-choice voting system. 100%. Yeah, 100%. So, so very, yeah, very interesting results, and also a just a warning, again, to the GOP. You can win. They can win. <laughs> Not like this. Not like this. <laughs> Well, that does it for us for the week. Tomorrow, Emily and Ryan will be with you to share the most important news of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who, like me, like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Everybody have a great Labor Day weekend. I'm doing some traveling. I know you are as well. I am too. Mask, don't mask. Do whatever suits your preference. Whatever suits your preference. <laughs> All right, bye, everybody. Bye-bye.